again and I welcome you back to your seats all of you so as you can imagine I was not prepping for Sunday's sermon uh, last week I was just trying to survive and uh, so I had already arranged for a guest speaker and uh, you know him he's spoken before he was our uh, tour guide in Israel and he has returned. He phoned and said, uh, hey, I'm in the area uh, in July. And I looked down at the calendar. It's like this weekend. Wow, perfect timing for us. And so, Aron, why don't you welcome him? Let's, be let's begin with a little joke, all right? Two Jews walked into a Calvary Chapel. Oh, no. Oh, that's us. It's us. All right, yeah. But there are a few out there. Are there? There are. And so so only, only two Jews here? No, there are a few out there. There's one right there, Wendy. Okay. Yeah, there's right. another one right there. Okay. Joe. So you know what they say where there's two Jews, there's three opinions and four decisions. <laughs> <laughs> he has an encyclopedia of these jokes, all right? So, so this guy, the first words when we met in Tiberias on the Sea of Galilee at the hotel, his first words to me, I said, hey. He goes, oh, you're Jewish. And, and I said, oh, yeah, so how do you know that? And he goes, we could hide Moses, but not the noses. <laughs> and then I said to him, first words to him were, you should talk. <laughs> Takes one to no one. So this guy, uh, let me tell you a little bit about him. Loves the Lord. He was raised in an Orthodox Jewish home in New Zealand, of all places. And when he was, we have another Kiwi, front and center. And when he was 19, he had a dramatic conversion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he emigrated to Israel and served in the armed forces for nine years, retired as a sergeant, sergeant. How do you say it? Sergeant. Sergeant. <laughs> You guys make English sound so fancy. It's really nice. Well, our English is very different. I mean, I grew up thinking that gay meant someone happy and uh, lesbian was the capital of Portugal. <laughs> so, you, so you definitely, so you would have a lot of trouble if you were happened to be happy in Portugal. Yes, I would, you're right. <laughs> All right, we could do this shtick yeah, on we the could. We, we could, could take it on the road. Yeah. Yeah. You know so, what? I th we could be stand-up comedians, but we shouldn't because people might laugh at us. Yeah. <laughs> and then that would hurt our feelings. Yeah, exactly. Oi, exactly. Oi, I know. Oi, I know. <laughs> All right. So anyway, what I wanted to say is that he knows so much. He's so eloquent. He's got a heart to just open passages uh, in the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. And so it's a delight to have you back with us. It's great to be here. Thanks, Shalom. Ross. Shalom. <clears throat> Thanks, Ross. 
it's great to be back. I feel like this is like a home to me. Um, I was here about this time last year, and I see a lot of faces that were on uh, the bus, the buses. And I hope uh, some of you are coming back in April. And if you haven't been, come sometime. It's a life-changing experience coming to Israel. <clears throat> As Ross said, I was brought up in uh, New Zealand. And uh, I uh, came in from a Jewish family, very secular. I had a, a strong encounter uh, with a Christian who like, got on my face and talked to me about the Bible and the gospel. And I was like uh, struck down with the reality of it all. And I gave my, my uh, life to God, to, to Jesus. And um, my, intellectually, it wasn't really a struggle for me. I, I guess I was like ripe for the picking. It wasn't a, a struggle at all. But my big struggle was like, what was my Jewish mother gonna say? That was my main concern because I grew up being taught that Christians, Catholics, Jesus, they're like, they're anti-Jewish, they're anti-us, uh, it's them and us. So uh, I was like really concerned and it all came out, I told them and they, they cut me off and it, it was a big scene. Um, today, 30-something, 30 36 years later, uh, there's still struggles when you present the gospel to Jewish people. And probably one or two of the biggest barriers are, uh, number one, Jewish people traditionally don't believe that God can appear in bodily form. So to say that you know, Jesus is God, this historical man, Jesus, Yeshua in Hebrew, is God. It's like blasphemy to them. And the second big struggle for Jewish people is uh, the whole concept of what we or what Christians call the three-in-one, the Trinity, the Godhead, uh, because the number one most important verse for Jewish people is Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So how do you explain to a Jewish person? Um, and remember, there are many, many, many different kinds of Jewish people. Uh, you get Orthodox Jews, ultra-Orthodox Jews, conservative Jews, Messianic Jews, liberal Jews, reformed Jews, orange Jews, pineapple Jews, <laughs> all kinds of Jews. And you take a, an, an ultra-Orthodox Jew and a secular Jew, they're two different worlds apart, okay? Uh, it's like in the United States, they say there are about 100 Baptist denominations now. And sometimes, you know, they can be in two different uh, ends of the pendulum. So uh, you can try to explain to secular Jews, like, you know, my background, and it's very different than trying to explain to an Orthodox Jew. So you can try and use, um, you know, the argument of an egg, how it's got a shell, it's got a white, it's got a yolk, or you can use the argument of water, vapor, ice. And uh, to an Orthodox Jew, that's a very weak argument because their world is the Bible. That's their world, that's their authority, that's the foundation of all their revelation and understanding of who God is. 
So you've got to somehow come from a, bibli a, a biblical perspective. And one of the good arguments, or a, a couple of good arguments that are, I've used before, uh, goes right back to the book of Genesis, chapter 1. Uh, in the beginning, God. And the Hebrew word God is Elohim. It's not El, which is singular. It's Elohim, which is a plural word. So that's a good start. The next verse says, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. So that's another good uh, argument. And then, uh, as Ross reminded me earlier, God said, let us make man in our image. So these are really effective arguments, but also the Hebrew word one, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, it's actually a plural word. And it's the same word used when a man leaves his mother and father and cleaves to his wife. The two become one. So are a married couple two or are they one? Yes. Yeah, kind of individually they're two, but corporately they are one. So these are some of the arguments, but it's from their scriptures that is the foundation of your argument. Now, if you don't know all that, if you can't remember all that, you just use what you've got. And uh, However, in reaching Jewish people, uh, particularly Israelis, particularly uh, Orthodox, as I say, the, the scriptures is the foundation. And today I want to talk about uh, a story in the Gospel of John. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 1. And I want to show how John himself, how he used Scripture to strengthen his argument and claim that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is God, that he is the Creator. And he used his Bible to back up that argument. By the way, what Bible did John have? And don't say the King James. <laughs> what Bible did he have? It's what we call the Old Testament or the Tanakh. Um, what Bible did Jesus have? The Old Testament. There was no New Testament, right? That came 30, 50, 60 years later. So the Bible that they used, that they studied, that they that John tries to prove the Messiahship of Jesus, he quoted scriptures from that Bible. And that's why when you read your New Testament, you will find the Old Testament all the way through it. When Peter quotes, Be ye holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy, that's a direct quotation from the book of Leviticus. So if you don't know your Old Testament, uh, you're going to miss out a lot from the New Testament. And when the writers of the New Testament were writing, they were writing to people who only had the Old Testament. And they were writing in, uh, in a way that they hinted at things in the Old Testament. And we're going to see some of those things in our passage. So the story from uh, John chapter 1, but actually in verse 1, John begins his whole argument going way back to creation, where he begins, in the beginning was the Word. He, he starts his argument in the book of Genesis, in the beginning. 
And then a little bit later, he gets to the story from verse 43, and it's an encounter that uh, Jesus had with a couple of uh, young men. Verse 43 says, The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and finds Philip and said to him, Follow me. And Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip finds Nathanael and says to him, We have found him, of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, and this is my verse for the day, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said to him, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw thee. And Nathanael answered and said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe, you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Very verily I say unto you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now if you look between the lines in the story, John is packing the story with the Old Testament. Like I mentioned, the first thing, he goes back to creation. And he's trying to prove that Jesus is not just the Messiah, but that he is the creator. In chapter 2, he talks about a story where Jesus turns water into wine. How can you do that? In chapter 5, he talks about Jesus healing a blind man by taking the dirt of the earth, spitting on it, rubbing it on his eyes, connecting the story of creation when man was created out of the earth. And in John 5, it was in that context that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Remember in the book, in the story of creation, there was darkness and God said, let there be light. So John gives so many hints, but he is going back to the scriptures. And... Uh, the beginning of the story, when Nathanael is coming toward Jesus, what did Jesus say? Here is an Israelite in whom there is no guile. Now you have to ask yourself, what's the connection with the Old Testament? And obviously, Jesus is talking about a man called Jacob. Remember, Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and Jacob he was filled with guile. Even in the mother, his mother's womb, he had that competitive nature. When his brother tried to get out first, he grabbed him by the, the heel. And then he, he deceived and he cheated so many people. And uh, here the Lord is saying, here is an Israel. Here is, in a way, saying, here is an Israel in whom there is no Jacob. Really, when you read and understand the mindset of the writers of the day writing into the context of the time and the period, they are coming from an Old Testament uh, understanding. Uh, what was Nathaniel's response in verse 48? 
How do you know me? And I don't know, I was saying earlier, I don't know if this is stretching it a little bit, but do you remember the encounter that Jacob had when he wrestled with the Lord? Remember he said, who are you? What is your name? Who are you? And that whole dialogue. And maybe John is touching on that, you know, how do you know me? And Jesus said before, in verse, uh, verse 48, Jesus said, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you there. Now the fig tree was a place that students and uh, uh, disciples, people, when they spent time in God's Word, uh, they would go to this place of a vine, a fig tree, and um, it was almost like an unwritten law that when you were there, you would study, you would pray, you would meditate, and you would pray every day for the coming of the Messiah. It's kind of like for the last 2,000 years when we Jews were living in exile, three times a day we would pray, Shana Hababi Ushalam, next year in Jerusalem, the hope that one day we would return back to the land of our forefathers. And uh, so three times a day, next year in Jerusalem. And uh, of course, we're back there now. And uh, now Jewish people pray every day, may your temple be rebuilt and may it be in our days. And I wish we had time to talk about that today, but you have to come on the tour and we'll talk about that because these are exciting days where more and more we're seeing Jewish people wanting that temple uh, rebuilt. In any event, uh, the vine and the fig tree was the place of peace, a place of rest. Zechariah chapter 3 talks about a day, a utopian day, when every man will sit under his own vine or under his own fig tree, a place of tranquility. And Jesus said, before I, I knew you, no, verse 48, before Philip called you, you, are, you were under the fig tree, I saw you there. And interestingly, Nathaniel's response, he says, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. Perfect man, perfect God. The son of God, the king of Israel. How did he get that revelation? What's interesting is that the place where Jesus grew up, this story, Nazareth, when you actually look at his life, the first 30 years, all you really see is him pretty much as a man. You see him as a 12-year-old man, growing up, having a bar mitzvah, going up to the temple in Jerusalem, working as a carpenter, uh, going into the synagogue as was the custom. You really, you see no miracles or healings or raisings from the dead. This was total humanity. But it was when he turned 30 years old, things changed. He one day goes into the synagogue as was the custom, opens up the scrolls, reads from the scroll of Isaiah, Ruach Adonai Alai, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. 
because he's anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor, to the opening of the prison to them that are bound, the recovery of sight to the blind, the acceptable year of the Lord. And then it says, he closed the scrolls and says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. I mean, what a, what a bold statement, what a bold thing to say. They didn't like it. They wanted to get rid of him. So this was the place of his, uh, his, uh, um, his youth, his background. And uh, Nathaniel gets this revelation that he is the, the son of God and the king of Israel. How did he get it? Not sure. But maybe it was something to do with the way Jesus spoke to him. You know, before uh, Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree. Or maybe it was that particular day Nathaniel prayed that prayer. Uh, May the Messiah come. And all of a sudden, this 30-year-old man turns up on the scene and he gets it by the Holy Spirit. He realizes this is the Messiah. And Jesus responded and said, Because I said unto you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe, you will see greater things. And he said unto him, Verily, verily, I say to you, hereafter you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And here John is relaying what happened, but he's now connecting it to another story connected to Jacob, because Jacob, in Genesis chapter 28, Jacob is running away from his past. He's cheated his brother. He's cheated his father. He's cheated his uncle. He's at an all-time low in his life, and he's out in the desert. And one night he's out in the desert, and he's ready to go to sleep. He gets a, a rock and he makes it into his, uh, his pillow. And by the way, uh, any, any person on one of my tour buses who complains about their pillows in the <laughs> hotels, just remember this story. He puts his head on the rock and that night he has a dream. And in the dream, he sees this ladder where the angels of God are ascending and descending. And on top of the ladder, he sees the Lord. And the Lord speaks to him and says, "Uh, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac. To you, I give the land on which you lay. And then he says, Uphorazda, you shall break forth to the north, to the south, to the west, and the east. God is going to enlarge his borders. He's going to bless him. And this was a blessing to Jacob. And think of the the context when this happened. He's at an all-time low. He's not even looking for God. He's actually running away from God. He's got all these bad memories, and the Lord appears to him in this way. And it wouldn't have surprised Jacob, that ladder, because in the ancient Near Eastern uh, civilizations, 
most of the religions had what was called a ziggurat, which was a ladder, similar to the, at the Tower of Babel, where the idea was that you built your way up to the gods or your god, and there was a gate. And uh, when Jacob wakes up, he said, surely this is a place where God is, and I didn't even know it. This is the gate to heaven. And he calls the name of the place Beit El or Beth El or Bethel. And um, he sets up on this uh, stone and he pours oil on it as a memorial, the place of anointing. This became the house of God. Uh, that's what Bethel means, the very house of God. When you think about the mess that J Jacob's life was in, um, how dare he call this place the house of God when you compare it with a lot of these ancient Near Eastern temples and structures, and yet Jacob knew that he had an encounter with the true living God. And it's interesting how John, he uses this quotation, he uses the story in the context of Nathaniel. Obviously, Nathaniel was going through some issues in his life. Why? Because he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Obviously, there was nothing good going on. And, um, you know, actually, one of the questions I have is, what emphasis did uh, Nathaniel have? Was it, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Or was it, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Because Nazareth um, was a very insignificant town. In fact, a famous historian, Flavius Josephus, he uh, lists every single town, village in all of the Galilee region. And there were 327 towns and villages. And when you read that list, you will not find Nazareth in that list. So what does it say about Nazareth? It says that it wasn't even worth mentioning. Go there today, you'll see, find a little bit of archaeological remains, houses, storage rooms, mikvaot, uh, baptismal pools, but a very insignificant place. And yet that's where the Messiah turns up. He turned up 30 years ago when nothing good was happening there in the form of a baby. And that was a radical thing because, number one, it was prophesied in the, in the uh, scroll of Isaiah chapter 11, it says, a branch will come forth out of Jesse and the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The Hebrew word branch is netzer, which is the root word of Nazareth, Nazareth. So a branch will come forth out of Jesse, the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. That's what he said when he was in the synagogue. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. So it was prophesied. Number two, as Jesus was born, there was a national tragedy. Um, Herod the Great had killed all the baby boys. And uh, the people of the day, while that was a tragedy, no doubt they would have been thinking of what happened in the days of Moses, how Pharaoh also killed all the baby boys. And yet, in that context, God 
spared the deliverer. The deliverer was raised up. Moses. Moses grew up. Moses himself said, the Lord your God will raise up unto you one like me. Deuteronomy 18.18. So that's why when Jesus was dedicated as a baby in the temple, when Simeon saw that baby, he wasn't surprised that it was the baby because he would have been reminded of the days of Moses where Moses was that divinely spared baby. He became the mediator. He became the deliverer, the lawgiver, and all of that. So, and furthermore, it was in Nazareth that we get the whole story of the annunciation by the angel Gabriel when he appears to this uh, young woman, as was prophesied also. Uh, and that was who? Mary, or her Hebrew name, Miriam. And she would have probably been about 11, 12 years at the time. And uh, she got this wonderful news and she breaks out in joy. My soul does magnify the Lord and my spirit does rejoice in God, my Savior. And uh, while she's on that height, I'm trying to imagine Mary thinking, oh, oh, hang on, wait. How am I gonna tell Joseph? You know, I'm sure he'll believe me, right? You know, all I have to tell him is that God has made me pregnant and he'll believe, right? It's crazy. It must have been a very nerve-wracking moment for her. And in fact, a very dangerous moment for her because according to the law of Moses, she was in danger of either being thrown out or stoned to death. So I don't know how she told him. You ever thought about that? You know, hey, Joseph, I got some news for you, but you better sit down. I don't know how she would have broken the news. But uh, Joseph obviously could not receive that. And I don't think any of us could. And he, being a righteous man, it says, wanted to put her away. But the Lord, the angel, uh, came along to him and you know, uh, verified her story. And so he goes along with, uh, for the ride. But the question, can anything good come out of this simple, um, you know, insignificant place, Nazareth? And uh, what did Philip say? Well, come and see. Let's, let's check it out. What have we got to lose? And uh, Nathaniel comes and he gets this amazing encounter with the Lord Jesus. And it's very similar to Jacob. Can anything good come out of Jacob's situation in the desert where he's at an all-time low? You know, the, the, the difference in those days with, with these ziggurats is that there was only one way, and that was you building your way up to God. But this ladder, this dream that Jacob had, this dream, this vision that the Lord said that Nathaniel was going to get, it was not just one way. It was the angels coming down as well. And Jesus said to him, you will see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And friends, I don't know where you're at, but you may feel that your situation is like Nazareth, is like Jacob. And you may be asking, can anything good come out of my situation? I don't know what your definition of good is, Maybe it's a, a, a better car. I don't know. 
sometimes our prayers are not answered the way we want or when we want. And uh, sometimes they don't turn out the way we would want it to be. But my understanding of the scriptures is, you know, the material possessions, the relationships, all that, they're, they're good and they're important. But to me, the most important focus, what I'm understanding more and more in the scriptures, is really summed up in the, the, the name that Jacob called that place. He called it Bethel, Bethel, the house of God, the place where we are connecting with God. And isn't it amazing how Jacob's whole experience changed from being a, a down and out loser to all of a sudden having this encounter with God, experiencing God in his life, and all of a sudden everything, his focus, his emphasis, everything changes. The same with Nathanael. Or Nathaniel. So think about the, that story and think about uh, God. It's not just about us reaching out to God, as important as that is, but it's Him coming to us, whether sometimes we're seeking Him or not. So that's my message. Thank you and God bless you. Thank you, Aaron. That was awesome. Praise the Lord. Amen. Let me uh, tell you what we told the waitress who said, it's too late. I've gone too far. We said, it's so easy to come back because God doesn't base it on the latter. I didn't say this, but I'm applying it. He doesn't base it on our good works, our strivings. Oh, I promise I'll never do this and I'll always do that and all of that nonsense. First of all, you're lying again. You're never going to be able to do that. He's the gate. He's the ladder. And he comes down to us. That's the whole difference between the gospel and religion. Religion, you got to be doing something. And in the gospel, you do nothing but you bring your broken life with your sins to him. And he comes down. And he pays the sins and he rises up and rises as a resurrection and you're joined to him and so uh, we told the waitress it's a cry out to the Lord that's it and your your rock pillow that you lay down on and your tough times the hard things that you're going through come on one simple prayer of faith and God says that's enough my grace is sufficient You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.